everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Melissa Mark Vivarito, who is running for Congress in the Bronx. She has a background uh, from Puerto Rico and has served for a number of years on the New York City Council. Welcome to our show, Melissa. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, so this podcast primarily focuses on criminal justice reform, but I do want to ask uh, some uh, more general questions about your background and uh, understand why you're running for Congress. So if you could tell us um, a bit about that. Sure. So um, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Uh, both my parents actually, uh, Puerto Ricans born and raised um, in New York City that returned to the island, uh, met there, got married and raised their family. Uh, so my roots are kind of deep on in, in New York City, but that's the, the result of a migration, right, of, of our community, the Puerto Rican community. Uh, so I came to New York at the age of 18 and just uh, became very active after graduating college in activism, organizing the nonprofit sector, uh, moved to a Latino slash Puerto Rican neighborhood, uh, East Harlem, El Barrio. And as I was active here, decided to run for office. And it was uh, an interest, right, to really be able to represent a marginalized community, a community that had been left out, uh, of a lot of the conversations and decision making and and really talking about making change happen by changing our policies right as a city so my district uh rep- was was East Harlem El Barrio and also the South Bronx and so uh when I became an elected official I was very committed uh, to using the platform that I had to talk about the issues of of inequity talking about the issues of injustice and really striving to give voice to to those who have felt that government hadn't really been responsive to them. So I had served as 12 years in the city council and the last four years uh, through the end of 2017, I was uh, elected to uh, by my peers to be the speaker of the New York City Council and led that legislative body, which basically is in charge of enacting the laws in the city of New York, of negotiating the budget for the city of New York with the mayor, um, and uh, the legislative body for the city of New York is is 51 members, vastly Democratic, obviously, um, some more moderate than others. We had a couple of Republicans, but it was really always about giving voice to the voiceless 
and trying to work, you know, working towards making New York City a more just and equitable place. So I really focus a lot of my work on immigration reform here locally, on criminal justice reform. Um, those are two areas uh, that I did a lot of, of work on, on accountability when it came to police uh, and policing in general, uh, the issue of closing Rikers Island here in the city of New York. So for me, running for Congress is really kind of just a continuation of that, a continuation of looking now at a national level of how do we enact structural and systemic change so that we can demand that our society is more just and more equitable for all. And the district that I'm running in, the 15th Congressional District in the Bronx, is a vastly democratic district, but it also is a vastly unequal district in that it is low income. It has a lot of health disparities based on uh, maybe lack of access to quality food, uh, the environmental factors. There's a lot of waste transfer stations in this district, um, housing injustice that exists here, health disparities. So those are all issues that, to me, um, are reflective of what's wrong with our current system and the changes that we need to enact so that we can create that more just and equitable society. So that's really what has moved me to to run for, for Congress. And then tell us about the congressional seat that you're seeking. Uh, who currently holds it? Are you running against an incumbent or are you running in an open seat? So the seat is currently represented by Congressman Serrano. Uh, who has been in office for 30 years. He has decided he had, he does have a health issue, so he decided to not run for re-election. And so now it is an open seat, and so there are a lot of candidates running. This is a district that is overwhelmingly Latino. It is a 70% district uh, comprised of, of uh, varied you know, Latino communities, Puerto Rican, Dominican, uh, you have a Mexican community as well. You have a West African immigrant community here as well. You obviously have an African-American community. Uh, it is a district that predominantly speaks uh, a language other than English. Uh, as I mentioned, it has a large immigrant community. And it is a very poor district. Uh, that's an economic reality uh, and something that I think is, is an in a grave injustice, uh, the inequality that exists here. So that's some of the demographics of the district. And this district is wholly, um, is wholly within the borough of the Bronx uh, here in New York City. And so, as I mentioned, it is an open seat and there are a lot of candidates running. And within that field, obviously, there is a, a concern. There's different points of views and perspectives, but there is one candidate in particular, um, which many outside of New York City are starting to be very concerned about, who does, you know, ha has name recognition and people fear could win, who is someone who is um, homophobic, someone who's misogynistic, someone who's anti-choice, uh, who can't, who calls himself a Democrat, and there's concerns there uh, of that. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting race, uh, but I believe that uh, based on my reality, the fact that I represented a portion of this congressional district for 12 years, uh, the fact that there's familiarity with me in this district, having been speaker, I had a citywide platform here in the city of New York that has given me a lot of visibility. Uh, it is a district that skews more uh, elder folks, older voters. And, and so they really care about 
having a relationship with the people that they they um, elect. And I feel I have that based on my familiarity. And those are advantages. And I, then I'm fully bilingual and bicultural, having been raised in Puerto Rico. And, and that's something that is important in this district, too, is being able to communicate effectively with those that you're seeking to represent. So mostly I want to focus on criminal justice reform since that's what uh, this podcast is really about. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, it's interesting uh, that I have you on today. Last night we did this webinar and uh, we had mostly attorneys from Northern California where I'm based, but we also invited Janos Martin, uh, who's running for DA in Manhattan. And, yeah. and he was part of the closed down Rikers movement. And so yeah. um, he was talking about uh, the issues of COVID and uh, closing down Rikers. So, uh, so that's part of your platform is to close down Rikers as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, you know, Rikers is, is the jail system here in New York City. It, Rikers Island is an island. It, it is pretty much isolated. It is hard to get to. Uh, the complex of Rikers Island was built in the 1930s, obviously a, a, a way outdated uh, institution. And it is made up about 12 different jails uh, in, on that island. And it's just a deeply inhumane um, uh, facility and, and system, jail system. And where we have seen, obviously, we know those of us that have fighting this fight that there's an overcriminalization of black and brown bodies in this country. And we are obviously not immune to that here in the city of New York, where we have seen a lot uh, of, of people jailed for low level, nonviolent offenses, you know, having people have this negative interaction with the criminal justice system and all the implications that that brings with it. Right. The issue of how it impacts your job, your quality of life. Uh, potentially the custody of your children, uh, housing situations, et cetera. And so uh, for me, uh, the the advocates, right, have been talking for a long time here about closing Rikers. And I think it was something that many viewed as a third rail issue, very scared to talk about it or to embrace it. And when I was speaker, I decided that that was something that I wanted to embrace. I thought it was important that I believed what the advocates were saying uh, that this outdated, inhumane facility needed to be shut down. Um, and, and alongside that, right, it was not just about shutting down Rikers, but also alongside that fighting about what is our philosophy when it comes to our justice system? Um, what are we doing to try to minimize uh, the criminalization of communities, but also the interaction with the criminal justice system? And how do we put and implement policies to make sure that we are lessening the number of people that are in the jail system here in New York. And so I was alongside the, the fight to close Rikers, it was also the issue of, you know, of bail. How do we ensure that people have the ability uh, to get out of jail and await their court dates at home within their communities and their um, social structures? How do we try to ensure that low level nonviolent offenses uh, were not leading to an arrest and leading you to potentially have a stay at Rikers Island? So we were doing a lot of that work alongside the call for the closing of Rikers. Now, Rikers Island, what really symbolized the inhumanity of it was the unfortunate story. And I know Janice spoke about that last night of Khalif Browder, uh, who uh, was a 16-year-old child uh, who was arrested here in the city of New York for having uh, being accused of having stolen a backpack, again, a nonviolent offense. 
uh, he was arrested for that. He's 16 years old. He was taken to Rikers Island. His family was a poor family, did not have the money to pay for his bail. Um, and so for being a accused, not convicted, accused of stealing a backpack, he was in Rikers for three years. And um, a lot of that time, he was put in solitary confinement as an adolescent. And so by the time he did get out of Rikers, which was three years later, that whole experience had destroyed him, you know, and as a result of that, he killed himself. And uh, that story just kind of symbolized everything that was so wrong. So when I decided to uh, use my platform as speaker of the New York City Council to say publicly that I wanted to close Rikers Island, I asked the mother of Khalif Browder to join me, and she did. And um, she then since has passed away, unfortunately. But, you know, it was about talking about the inhumanity of that, of that, um, of, of what our jail system and our criminal justice system was doing to a generation, right? And so that to me was, was important. And so that's what led me uh, to take on this fight. So we've gotten to the point now where the city of New York has voted finally uh, on, on the closure of Rikers Island. And that process will be a process that probably will happen within the next, I think six to eight years. Um, and then bail reform has been a big issue in New York. Uh, they had passed legislation uh, last year. They started implementing it. And then the state legislature uh, has kind of backed off and revised it and watered it down. So where are you on that? So the, the, we had limitations at the city level. Um, a lot of those changes have to happen at the state level, right? So you've got a governor and a state legislature that has been at odds uh, on this issue. The state legislature here in New York, I mean, I know that people are getting a lot uh, and then hearing a lot from our governor, Governor Cuomo these days, and those briefings that he provides. Uh, but we here, those of us that are progressive in this state, um, have had been at loggerheads with our governor, who is not a progressive and who has really pushed back on a lot of progressive policies that we've been able, we've been trying to enact. And so for a long time, we had a state legislature that was, that assembly was Democratic, but the Senate was Republican. And the governor liked it that way because it was, he was able to really have full control of the situation and was able to put the two parties against each other. And he was able to stall policies that he didn't want to embrace and enact. And the issue of criminal justice, I think, is one of them. So thankfully, you know, there was a progressive uh, mobilization uh, last election cycle, and we were able to really get a lot of great progressive candidates uh, to defeat Republican candidates. And so now we do have Democratic control of the Senate and of the Assembly here in the state of New York. Last year, they did pass, right, the bail reform legislation that you're alluding to. Many of us were happy with that. It was a long fight. Um, and now, unfortunately, uh, due to, to the pandemic, um, our governor has been granted a lot more authority and a lot more power. And as part of the budget negotiations this year, uh, was able to insert in the budget um, uh, the issue of rolling back a lot of the reforms that the community had advocated for. So we are now at a position where, um, like you're saying, a, a lot of that progress has been watered down. And um, that, that was kind of a, 
the, the maelstrom, right, of this of this pandemic and, and what it created and the climate and opportunity for a governor to step in and try to push back against some of those reforms. So I, we're going to have to do a real concerted effort uh, to push back against that. So that's at the state level. At the city level, you know, considering that we were handcuffed, that we really couldn't, you know, push forward on certain things because the state had to authorize it. But we tried to look creatively at what we could do. So when I alluded to like a bail fund, you know, we in the city of New York and under my leadership, a speaker invested taxpayer dollars in creating a bail fund, a revolving bail fund that was going to be available to low income communities. So that they could post bail and be able to await their court dates in jail. Um, so that's, you know, another symbol of the inequity in the system when if you and I are accused of the same exact crime um, and, you know, you have the ability to post your bail because you have the resources and I don't, um, I stay in jail. I stay in Rikers while you are able to go back home to your family and await your court date and your trial date at home. There was an inequity, so the bail form was a way of trying to at least um, have uh, provide some sort of relief. So that's something that I did that I was very proud of, um, in light of the the fact that we could not outright, you know, change the bail structure and the bail system here in the city of New York. So there were other things like that that I was able to put forward. You know, the the um, the recategorization of certain low-level nonviolent offenses that previously uh, was leading to an arrest record. We were able to change those and work to change the culture in the NYPD to now issue a fine for those and as opposed to any sort of jail time. Um, things like that that we were able to do here in the city. So I'm very proud of that work and I want to be able to scale that up, you know, and, and take that level of advocacy uh, at a national level and work right to, to, on those issues in Congress. And um one of my favorite issues um, still is uh, the stop and frisk issue. Are they still doing that in New York? Yes, unfortunately, that's you know, yes, definitely. The the the, the ruling right the, that the practices, the way they were being implemented, were unconstitutional. That was something that a lot of us. This is before I was speaker um, under Mayor Bloomberg here in the city of New York. Uh, you know, stop and frisk was just out of control. I mean, at the height of it, oof, we were seeing about 700,000 um, stop and frisk. And um, based on the advocacy again from the advocates, um, we were able to then see that court case uh, say that that practice had to be uh, stopped and that also uh, there was going to be um, an inspector or some sort of a, a um, I forget what you call it. It's mandated by the federal government uh, that they would then be, be watching the uh, uh, New York City Police Department to make sure that they were not uh, doing it the way that they were doing it in the past. So that that was a lot of hard work because there was incredible resistance uh, from the from the NYPD, from the commissioner at the time, from the mayor Bloomberg at the time, uh, and then towards the tail end we were able to get that victory, and then it led us into the new administration of Mayor de Blasio. Uh, the concern is right now with the pandemic is that we are seeing uh, policing standards vary by community. And so you are seeing African-American low income and, and Latino communities uh, where the social distancing is being used as an excuse for, for cops to kind of come in and, and uh, be abusive and be aggressive with communities of color. And so I call that the new level of stop and frisk, the new iteration of stop and frisk. 
unfortunately in this climate. So we have to keep exposing that, that injustice and exposing the disparities uh, and how certain communities are treated. And these are the changes that we have to demand from, from, our, uh, from our laws and from our systems that a lot of times have been founded on racism, right? And racist practices that kind of embed themselves in policies and, and the way people act and the actions that people take. And so we have to be very clear about speaking it and talking about that truth and that we cannot allow that to happen. So stop and frisk has not gone away. Um, you know, there there is obviously always a concern about data and the lack of transparency in reporting, uh, which are also things that we tried to uh, legislate when I was in the city council, more uh, sharing of data from the police department so that we can analyze uh, what the practices are and, and how we can change those practices. So I want to move on uh, because you're running, of course, for Congress and Congress is federal. And so you'll have control over federal law. So what is it that you would, uh, what is it that you see as a big issue uh, for federal uh, government in terms of criminal justice reform and what what sorts of things would you do? Well, I mean, I, you know, and this is where, in terms of my leadership style, I'm someone that uh, does not make decisions in a vacuum. You know, I really, um, I need, I need, just for me, you know, I'm someone that's always constantly seeking information um, and really hearing from those who are impacted uh, and, and figuring out ways that I can best lend my voice and my support. Uh, using the model of like some of the things that I've taken on locally, I want to be able to talk about those issues at a national level and advocate for changes when we talk about our bail system, right? We've, we've heard a lot about the pr private prison system, that we should definitely get out of that. And I believe in that. Uh, when we talk about the criminal justice system, we can't also not, we can't leave out also when we talk about detention centers and detention facilities and how our immigrant communities are being treated um, and, and how they're being incarcerated. Uh, so those are all things that I believe are important. So the bail system, the private prison system is something that I definitely want to um, to be a, vo a vocal voice about. There's also the issue of, and uh, talking to some of the advocates recently that have been taking on the issue of of pro prosecutors and the 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 um, the, the, um, the practices, right? Some prosecutors uh, and the fiscalization and accountability of prosecutors uh, as well in terms of how they prosecute cases. Uh, so there's different issues there. So I definitely want to, to create kind of like uh, an advisory committee that I can consult with and be really well grounded on these issues and figure out from a federal perspective and a national perspective, what are the things that we have the authority to do uh, and develop a comprehensive agenda that speaks to that using my experience at a local level as, as, uh, as an example. And so um, definitely look forward to the continued partnership with you uh, and, and with others that have been advocating in this in this field as well. So one big issue that I, I know mm -hmm. about, and and they 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 addressed it, um, but I'm searching for words because the the discrepancy in the sentencing uh, in the federal guidelines between powder cocaine and crack yeah. cocaine was enormous. And, yeah. and they fixed it during the Obama administration if fix has quotations around it. 
because they basically took it from what a hundred to one to like twelve to one or something ridiculous like that. Do, mm-hmm. you, do you know that? Um, you know, no, I'm aware. Yes, I'm aware of that issue. I mean, but that just is just is is um an example of how the system is, it treats certain communities one way and uh, other communities. Right? So that that distinction, right, where powdered cocaine was more utilized by white communities, right, crack cocaine um with regards to 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 the communities of color and so the uh, the sentencing obviously modeled that um and and that's an issue right when we talk about uh crime what quote-unquote white collar crimes but when you talk about the financial meltdown that happened and how people's houses were being taken away from them how there was predatory lending that was happening and those predatory practices and the lives that were destroyed because of those practices and yet none of those people went to jail, right? And then you have situations where you're over-criminalizing certain communities um, for other types of offenses. Uh, and all you have to do is look at the makeup, the demographic makeup of those communities, right? White-collar crime, obviously, and then the fact that they were treated with kid gloves as opposed to how handcuffs are easily slapped and people are put into jail when you're talking about low-income communities of color. That's, you know, that's, uh, 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 that's how the, the, the symbolic, that's the problems that we have in our society. But that stems to me from racism and that systemic oppression that is real. Um, and so that is what has to happen in advocacy that will lead to, to, um, to making that known and to making sure that our practices change and adapt uh, once we get that understanding, right? So I think that's, that's clear that this, that's the problem with the system at the end of the day. So here's an issue that came up this week, and I'm sure you're aware of it. Um, There was uh, a person executed in the state of Missouri um, who um, there was pretty strong evidence, I would say, that he did not commit the crime uh, that he was convicted of. Um, He had been convicted of a 2006 stabbing murder Um, They had found the victim's blood on him. The problem is, is that there were a few drops of the blood on him and, and he slashed her throat at the jugular, which would have uh, unleashed a torrent of blood. And so the blood spatter analysis was not consistent with him being the actual killer. Um, Clearly he was there because uh, the blood was found on him. And so he ends up, with all these questions and, and jurors are basically saying, uh, you know, that if they had known all this, uh, research, uh, at the time of the, um, actual, uh, trial, they, they would not have recommended the death penalty. And, you know, one, one really interesting graphic came up. It turns out that, uh, the state of Missouri, um, is the fifth, uh, has the fifth most executions since 1975. I think the number was 90. And, you know, they're all in the South, and Texas has the most. Um, but it's a real um, unequal enforcement of justice that if you commit a murder in California, for instance, uh, you know, uh, right now uh, California's 
death penalty is on moratorium, and so they're not carrying out any executions, and they've only carried out a few uh, handfuls of executions since uh, 1978 when it was reinstated in the state. New York, as far as I'm aware, doesn't even have a death penalty, and and so it, it's very uneven justice, and the federal government has never really stepped in uh, to ensure that there's some kind of equality of justice. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think I, 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 I you know, I'm totally opposed to the death penalty. I am a strong supporter, uh, and that it be abolished. And, and so that's, that's part of a campaign that I definitely, you know, want to be a part of like abolish it nationally, you know, and, and federally, uh, I would love to be able to see that happen. And so, yes, I mean, what you're saying is, is accurate because it all has to do with sentencing. I'm not a lawyer, right? right? I'm, let, me, let me be clear with that. But the way that sentences happen and, and who it impacts. And then when you start looking at the analysis, I think there was, a, what was it, Illinois, I believe it was quite a few years ago that put that moratorium in place on the death penalty because when you look at the data, right, and you saw the number of people, percentage-wise, obviously, that were being uh, found to not be guilty at the end of the day uh, uh, in these cases where they were being asked to be revisited, uh, where the data was taken a look at, where people were exonerated, you know, uh, projects like the Innocence Project that take a look at certain cases, you know, that based on that and that disproportionate disproportionality that you're defining, they, they decided to, the governor at that time decided to put a moratorium on the death penalty. I'm not sure if it still stands, uh, but that there was an acknowledgement, right, of, of how uneven it was, but also how unfair it was, and that a lot of times you we were putting people to death uh, who at the end of the day um, were, were potentially innocent, right, or more likely than not innocent. So it's just barbaric. I just don't agree with, the, with it in general at all, and I think it needs to be eliminated. So that's something that I, I believe in, and I think the, what you're defining and all that inequality um, it, it, it obviously makes the case as to why we should. And, you know, you, you brought up the Innocence Project. Uh, something else that uh, was really interesting, at least to me, the standard of uh, overturning that conviction was extremely high. So basically you had three jurors basically uh, write affidavits saying that the, this new evidence would have impacted how they uh, basically adjudicated the case. And the standard, at least uh, according to the Attorney General of the state of Missouri, was that no reasonable juror could have convicted under this state of evidence. And he argued that just because you have three people writing in, that doesn't meet that threshold. I mean, that would seem to me, at least from somebody who has uh, studied uh, wrongful convictions, uh, a big problem in terms of trying to figure, uh, trying to get people that are innocent off uh, and and out of prison. Uh, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say? Well, I agree. I mean, you're talking about uh, you know knocking somebody out, right? So taking a life, and if there's any shred of doubt um, that can be raised, uh, to me, that alone merits you know, some sort of attention and revisiting of, of these, of this issue uh, how people can comfortably say, Oh, well, okay, this doubt has been raised, but yet we move forward. It doesn't meet this, this threshold, which is unfair and unjust, like you're saying. Um, and we're just going to move forward. I, I just don't know how people sleep at night. I, I just, it's horrific to think 
how government can be in, in, involved in the murder of someone and the killing of a life and taking of a life. I don't, you know, I don't care the circumstances. Um, it's not a deterrent to violence, right? Which is always the excuse that's used. And there's no, um, there's no uh, proof of that. And so, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's really a grave injustice in this country. And so, uh, you make all these points that really just speak to that. So your race, um, the primary is just over a month from today, right? Yes, the uh, we we and obviously with with COVID here, since we're still at the epicenter of this, it's it's really thrown uh, everything up in the air. Our, our lives have been uh, upended in every which way. Uh, the Bronx is uh, disproportionately impacted by this pandemic in terms of the number of infection rates and percent and and uh, per capita deaths. Uh, and and also the way we do daily life. Obviously, running a campaign in the middle of this, uh, it's upended the way that um, we originally thought about running a campaign. But it is as of this past Tuesday, it was five weeks away. So we're just shy, a little bit over a month since election day, which is June 23rd. And how do you campaign under such conditions? I mean, do people even want to be engaged at this point? So you have to be, you know, sensitive to that reality. What I've done is I've, I've changed my approach, right? We, we, we started lockdown here in, in early May, uh, March. And I stopped, you know, now I've restarted it very gently, but like I, I did not do fundraising uh, since we went into this uh, pandemic. My concern was more about how do I connect uh, with people in the district, right? Finding out what their needs are. This is a high needs district and area. Um, making sure we make phone calls to our neighbors and our friends. How are you doing? Do you need any services? Do you need any help with anything? Um, that that was important. Now we're starting to phase in to making phone calls because there is confusion here in New York. Some people think our primary is canceled when it is not. And so being able to engage people and say, look, you know, how are you doing? But do you, you, know, you please be aware that there is still a, a primary June 23rd. Um, the governor is, is making a, has sent an executive order making it easier uh, for people to get access to absentee ballots. Uh, we are not a vote by mail state by any means. Uh, we look, we score very very low uh, out of the 50 states when it comes to reforms to make voting easier in the state. So we still have a lot of hurdles uh, to voting. So now asking people to basically switch from a mode of personally going to vote to like encouraging people to vote by mail overnight. Is, is a hard ask, right? And, and um, so there's a lot of engagement that we need to make with people to educate them, right? About uh, requesting an absentee ballot, you know, getting the ballot at home. How do you fill it out? Making sure they're sending it in. Uh, and there will still be those people that, that are saying that they would like to vote in person. Uh, but we don't know. I mean, five weeks out, we don't know where we're going to be uh, on June 23rd. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to open every single poll site, you know, whether it's going to be a downscale version. So it's, there's still a lot of uncertainty and, and questions that we haven't gotten answered. And so we're trying to just roll with the punches. And so what do you see as your chances at this point? I, I think they're great. I mean, the, you know, the, there is high familiarity and name recognition uh, for me because uh, for all the reasons I cited earlier that I did represent a portion of this district. I've been on the ballot eight times uh, in, in the Bronx, uh, in the portion of the district, not, not the whole congressional district. But I, I've been also very aggressive uh, about going out there. Before we had lockdown, 
you know, I had knocked on over 4,000 doors personally, uh, interacting with voters, not taking anything for granted, you know, making phone calls now, doing phone banking. And so I, I feel that I feel good. We've gotten some great endorsements from the American Federation of Teachers, United Auto Workers, um, and, and, uh, and doing a lot of, of personal touches. And so I, I feel good about it. It is about motivating people to vote. And this is, this historically also has been a very low voter turnout area. And so now the pandemic obviously hasn't made it easier. It's made it more challenging <laughs> to get people to vote. So there's a lot, there's a lot that's been thrown at us in a short period of time. And, and we're I'm just trying to be mindful of, of the sensitive, right? I'm not being overly aggressive with people. I'm not doing aggressive fundraising to people. Uh, that there's a lot of need that still exists. I want to make sure that the first interaction with folks right now is to gauge where they're at. And, you know, it's been touching, right? It's been, it's also been therapeutic for me, to be honest, to be able to feel useful and talking to people when they say, oh, I didn't know, how do I get access to this service? How do I sign up if I want to get food delivery as a senior, you know, that the city is providing food delivery. I had a young man um, in a wheelchair his electric wheelchair broke. He didn't have a wheelchair. We were able to get out there and get a wheelchair for him and get it delivered to his house. You know, talking to teachers, talking to nurses that are on the front lines. Um, you know, I talked to one who was fascinating. I talked to this one, one woman who's a nurse who's been nursed for 20 years. Uh, her daughter just graduated from nursing school and her first foray into the field is to be thrown into the middle of this pandemic. And when I touched base with them three weeks later, both of them had contracted coronavirus. Um, and they were both recuperating. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's been, you know, good to have those exchanges to just be of service to others. And that's first and foremost why I'm doing this. Well, I want to thank you for being on our show. Thank you so much for the, for the offer, for the invitation, for the opportunity. Um, I look forward to the partnership moving forward. I have full confidence we'll win this race and and I would love to be able to, to continue uh, talking to you moving forward. Thank you. That was Melissa Mark Viverito. She's running for Congress in the Bronx in New York under some very unique conditions, as she just explained at the end there. Uh, she's also got a very strong platform on criminal justice reform. She was involved as a city council member in a number of the issues that we've been talking about a lot. Uh, bail reform, closing down Rikers, and uh, stop and frisk. You've been listening to Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.